so uh, we're starting a new series, and we look for kind of a logo to kind of capture the idea, and this one's called Objection. And we look for music, and this is, the, you heard the music, they rejected my first idea, which was this one. Yeah, they, they, didn't, they didn't take that one, so anyway, yeah, Matt's got to get over some issues here, doesn't he? Anyway, I'm glad you're here this weekend. Uh, we're, we are starting a new series. We're talking about objections and just common questions. That It goes from people who are extremely opposed to Christianity to people who have questions to people who are, well, I don't really, I accept uh, the, 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 the tenets of Christianity, but I have questions or I'd love to know how to answer certain questions that my friends, family members, coworkers. And they've, they've, they've asked me, and I don't know if I had a good answer. So we're going to kind of go come through some of these uh, questions. And the one we're going to talk about uh, today is the exclusiveness of the gospel. Uh, in other words, is Jesus the only way to God? That's probably one of the biggest in our culture. And that goes against the stream of our culture that basically says you can believe whatever you want. We all kind of have our own beliefs, custom-made. And so the question is, how can Christians claim that Jesus is the only way to God? And uh, how are we to answer someone who struggles with these exclusive claims? We're going to look at a passage this weekend where Jesus basically talks about this belief and unbelief. And there's some things there that we're going to see that that maybe on the surface, as we go a little deeper, hopefully, it won't, we won't just have an answer for somebody who asks about our faith, because Jane, uh, Jude says, be ready to give an answer to those who see the hope within you. And, and so we want to have a good answer, but also it may push us to, to examine our own faith and to see kind of where, where our belief is grounded. So if you would, I'd love to have you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to start at verse uh, 20, and if you don't have a Bible, we have these nice chair Bibles. You can take one out and use it. Um, I always encourage you to have your own Bible because it gives you an opportunity to, to, you know, underline words and mark out things and things along those lines. But let me read this passage. I'm in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Uh, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father in heaven, uh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So that last verse is a really good example of a verse that you might want to underline in your Bible because it's a really incredible promise. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But Jesus does makes three key statements in our passage. The first one is, the first thing we see him doing is he denounces unbelief. He denounces unbelief. And, and essentially, it's very interesting. He says, many, many miracles were performed and you still don't believe. Now, we often approach these questions when people say they have, they say, well, I, I, I'm just struggling with this whole Jesus thing uh, because intellectually, I can't wrap my brain around it. I, I don't have a good answer for it intellectually. And we, we assume that if I had enough evidence, if I had enough proof, uh, if it made logical sense, if it satisfied my intellectual inquiries, then I would believe. Now, I would absolutely say that's true, that we don't believe blindly with no intellectual uh facts or, uh, I mean, when we talk about the resurrection, we talk about witnesses. We talk about people who saw him, people who touched Jesus. And so we were looking for that. But some people say, well, I, I just have to be able to prove it. And here's the thing. Jesus shows us that belief is not merely intellectual pursuit. There's a spiritual dimension to belief. There's a spiritual dimension to your belief. Look at the, look, jump over, you don't have this in your notes, but uh, look at uh, Romans chapter 1 for a moment. If you don't have that verse, just listen to me, because it's better that you listen and hear the verses than you try to find it, and you, by the time I get done, you didn't hear anything, right? So, Romans chapter 1, Paul makes an amazing statement. He basically says that God has revealed Himself through creation, through the world that we... You know, you, I don't know about you folks, if... If you went and looked out your window the last couple nights or see the, the beautiful sunsets and, and you say, there's got to be somebody behind all of this. There's got to be a creator behind all of this. And he says this, for although they knew God, now it doesn't mean they knew him intellectually and knew him personally. It means that they saw the finger, the hand, the, the paintbrush of the artist. They saw Somebody was, they, they just knew that somebody was behind it all. And he, they said, he, Paul says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's a spiritual condemnation there. What the writer, what Paul is saying is, there's a spiritual closure of their hearts here. This isn't an intellectual problem. This is a spiritual problem. And he goes on to say this, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like the mort a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So it's the same thing that we read in our passage where he says this. He's, notice he says, though they claim to be wise, they became fools. And in the passage we just get read where Jesus is speaking, he says, God, you, Father, you have revealed it not to the wise, not to the learned, but to the children. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. 
But then Paul closes this, this verse 24 in Romans 1. He says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So what I want you to see here is that belief, when all is said and done, it's not just an intellectual exercise, though it is. It is a spiritual thing. There is a spiritual turning. And some people would say, I would believe Jesus if only He did some miracle for me to prove that He was real. Notice what He's condemning these cities for. I've done so many miracles right before your eyes and you still don't believe. Because some people say, well, if Jesus would just answer this prayer, if Jesus would just make Himself known, if Jesus would just do a miracle for me, I would believe. You know, there was a story that Jesus tells in the, uh, it's in Luke chapter 16. It's about a rich man. And uh, he tells the story that this rich man would walk into his beautiful home every day and he walked by this poor beggar, Lazarus. And every day he never did anything to help Lazarus. He just walked into, walked into his house every day and, and uh, both the Lazarus and this rich man died. And Lazarus is said to be in Abraham's bosom. We, we take that to be an idiom for he was with God. But the rich man is, is suffering and is struggling. And we presume he's in hell. Essentially, that's the point Jesus wants you to see. And so there's this, there's this dialogue that's going between Lazarus and, 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 and God. And he says, send Lazarus down just to dip my tongue with water because I'm so, I'm dying down here. I'm, I'm just, I'm just dying. Now, a couple questions come to my mind is, so, why Lazarus? Why, why is he your servant of, of, for, for some reason? That's the first thing that comes to my head. The second thing that comes to my head is, he says, send Lazarus. And, and basically, the, you, can read it, you can read it. I'm summarizing right now. And basically, God says, that's not possible. That's not going to happen. And, and, and the rich man says, at least send him to warn my family. And this is what it says. This is Luke 16, verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. You see what Jesus is saying here? It's very important we catch this principle because we think we can argue people into heaven. We think that if we present just enough evidence, if we ask, uh, we answer all their questions, that one day they're going to say, well, I guess you've answered all my questions. Where do I sign? How do I believe? Where do I do it? And certainly that is a part of faith. But don't understand this. These passages show us that believing is a heart issue, not just a head issue. And Paul tells us that people have had have enough evidence. The same thing Jesus said to the rich man. They have all the evidence. They have the, the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the whole testament. They have enough witness. And if somebody were to rise and speak to them, they wouldn't believe. 
They had that miracle staring in them right in the eye. They wouldn't believe. The point is they need a change of heart. Here's the point I want you to draw first when you're dealing with folks who have these questions. Certainly try to answer their questions. But here's the point that I think we, we get off base. You will never argue somebody into heaven. You will never argue somebody into heaven. But you may pray them in. And one of the prayers I pray is, God, turn this person's heart. What happened when God turned your heart and opened your eyes? Everything changed. Because belief isn't just intellectual. There's a faith dimension to it. And understand that there's a spiritual battle going on for the hearts of the people that you love. Your family, your friends, your co-workers, the people around you. There is a spiritual battle. And what we try to do is we try to go in with an intellectual, you know, and we need to have that. I'm not trying to downplay that, but we don't pray. We don't ask God, God, go ahead of me so that my words, when I bring a, a logical argument and I bring a thoughtful, uh, a thoughtful uh, analogy, if I, as I bring good words, Father, if I do those, open their hearts to receive it. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Jesus makes an exclusive claim. Notice in verses 26 and 27 he says no one knows the father except the son reveals him now one of the things that religions do is they ask those most important questions of life so what are the most important questions that we ask in life well we ask questions like this what's the meaning of life we ask is there really a god we ask is there really a right and wrong Uh, we ask what's wrong with the human race and how in the world are we ever going to fix it? Are we going to get politicians? Are we going to get... Who's going to fix this world as we know it? Is there a heaven and is there a hell? And Jesus says, God has revealed these truths. God has revealed Himself to the little ones. He calls them the little ones. The little children. Now what does He mean by that? Because He says the wise and the learned people that Jesus is referring to uh, he says that God is, they say things like, God has not come down. There is no absolute truth. And many of the wise people today say there's no answer. Nobody knows and nobody ever will. These are religious questions and you can have an opinion on it. But it's better even when, if you have an opinion just to keep it to yourself. Don't bring it in the marketplace. Don't make it public because that's just divisive. And Jesus is saying something quite remarkable. He's saying that you can be a good person, that you can be a wise person, that you can be an intelligent person and still not know God. We sometimes think as Christians, we think, well, you know, they're they're a really good person and they're really wise people, so they must know God. (laughs) Not necessarily. That's not the claim that Jesus, Jesus is not saying that you can't be a good person and uh, you, you can't be a knowledgeable person or a wise person. He, he's not saying you can't be that without knowing God. He's saying you cannot know God at all and still be a good person and be a wise person and be an intelligent person. But here's the thing. You won't know God. You won't really know God. You see, many good and intelligent and wise people don't know God in a personal way because they refuse to come to know Him through Jesus. 
You've heard this claim, and, and I'll go through it rather quickly. Uh, people say, all religions are equally valid. You know, uh, you believe this, I believe this, we, you believe this. We all believe these things. Let's just keep it to ourselves. Let's not bring it to the marketplace because the minute we do that, the minute we say that our belief is right, our belief is exclusive, our belief is the one that, that trumps all the others, we've just set up a fight. And so they use this illustration. And maybe you've heard it. It's about these blind men and they're standing around an elephant. And they, the first one grabs the trunk. And he says, elephants are long and flexible creatures. Another one who is feeling the leg of the elephant says, no, 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 no. Elephants are short and thick. And then another one says, no, you're both wrong. Because his hands are on the side and he says, elephants are, are not, uh, they're not, they're not short and thick. They're not, uh, they're not, uh, long and flexible. They're, they're, they're flat. They're huge. And the moral of the parable is that the blind people are all wrong. They're all right, but they're all wrong. And then somebody will come in and say, the problem is, here's the problem, and this is the problem with religion. You have a part of the truth. You have a part of the truth. You have a part of the truth. So you're partly right, but you're wrong about the totality. In other words, somebody comes in and says, see, here's why these blind men are all wrong. Because they only feel a part of the elephant. They can't see the whole. Now, it's, you know, that's, you, you may have heard that. And they'll make the point. They'll say this, something like this. This is the problem with religions. They only have a part of the truth. They, come, they are partly right and they are partly wrong. No one has the entire truth. So no one should claim that they do. What do you say to that? How do you, how do you, maybe you, you've heard that illustration, haven't you? You've heard it. Here, here's one of the things you need to understand, though. Who says there's a whole elephant? Do you ever think about that? Somebody's standing there saying, there's a whole elephant there. Somebody is saying, I don't have a blindfold on. I'm not blind. I see the whole elephant. I see you three guys around the elephant. So I see the whole truth. Now time out here. Help me out here. So you're saying that anybody who holds an exclusive view, like they say, no, an elephant's like a leg, or an elephant's like a tail, or an elephant's like the side, or the elephant's like the trunk. You're saying they're all wrong, and you're right because you see the whole elephant. Isn't that an exclusive claim? To be able to, see you, you're basically saying, but I see the whole elephant and you're all wrong. So get what this person is saying. Get what this illustration is saying. This illustration is saying you can't have an exclusive claim because you, you have a, a very minimal view of the totality. But I have the total view. I have the exclusive view, and my view is right, and you're all wrong. So they're doing the same. They're, in other words, they're telling you, they're doing what they're telling you not to do. They're saying, don't be exclusive. Don't think that you're right and everyone else is wrong. And what they're doing is they're saying, my view is right, you're all wrong. So they're violating their own principle when they do that. 
The point I want you to see in all of this is this. They're trying to say that, and we, we kind of, as Christians especially, get put back on our back heels because they say, you Christians, you think you have this exclusive view and Everyone has an exclusive view, whether you're from Islam or you're from uh, uh, you're a Buddhist or you're a, 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 you're in Judaism or whatever view. Science, you're a materialist. You say there is no spiritual. That's a religious belief because you can't prove it. So we all get back in our heels as Christians, and we say it because they say you you claim to have an. Well, you're just as exclusive. The point is, we all have uh, exclusive views. Everybody who has ever lived has exclusive beliefs. When someone says no religion is superior, uh, has a superior take on spiritual reality, they're claiming a superior take on a spiritual reality, and they're actually violating their own ethic. Their view is just as exclusive as the rest. So don't, you know, turn it on them sometimes and say, well, who says that your view is correct. Or even more correct than mine. Everyone is attempting to defend their view of this world which has to deal with the unknown. And understanding their view, whatever they may call it, it is just as religious and exclusive as the gospel and the claims of Jesus. So the point I want you to see in all of this is when you hear this argument, just understand you don't have to be defensive and you, you, got, you can be thoughtful, but sometimes it's good to turn an argument on the person. If somebody were to say that to me, I'd say, well, so you're telling me you see the whole elephant? That's an exclusive claim, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I guess I never really thought about that. So you're basically saying you can have an exclusive view, but I can't. That doesn't seem fair, does it? Doesn't that seem like it's violating what you're telling me I can't do? So why can you do it and I can't? You'll have an interesting argument after that. But, you know, you, like I said, you're never going to argue somebody into heaven, but you may help them rethink their view. Now, the point I want you to see is that Jesus made many exclusive views. And we as Christians just can't, because some people in Christianity have just said, well, you know what, we're just going to downplay the exclusive claims of Jesus. We're just going to say... Um, we're not going to make, you know, we're not going to, you know, build it up. We're going to kind of downplay the exclusive claims. Well, he makes some exclusive claims. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He made a claim here. He says, if you want to know the Father, you've got to come through me. <laughs> That's pretty exclusive, right? I mean, this is, Jesus wasn't worried about being like out there and saying, you, if you want to get to the Father, you have to come through me. I mean, there's no other path. There's no other way. It's pretty clear. He didn't say, hey, there's about 20 paths. I'm just one. Buddha's another. There's a bunch over here. No, he says, I'm the only way to God. The other thing he says is he says, I'm God. So somebody has said that when somebody makes a claim like that, because some people say, well, I like the teachings of Jesus. He had, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, beautiful teaching of Jesus. Probably a number of messages he preached to people on a hillside. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I kind of don't like this part of Jesus. You know what that's like? Somebody has said, I think it was C.S. Lewis was one of the first ones, he says that when Jesus makes these exclusive claims, he's either a liar, like he's lying, he knows he's not God, he knows he's not the only way to God. Or he's a lunatic. <laughs> he's deluded. He's crazy. 
I mean, he's a madman or he is who he said he is. There's only three opportunities, three options, right? So let me tell you a story. This happened a number of years ago. So when I was going to Bible college, one of the things I would do is to get experience to preach, to be such a good preacher as I am today. No, <laughs> I would go to a nursing home or a convalescent center. And I would preach, and I went with another uh, young lady who would play the piano, and I led the singing and did the message, she played the piano. And we go, and we put a service on every Sunday. So one day, um, I was talking something about Jesus is the only way or something like that, and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, you're nervous, and you're with all these, and, and there was this lady there, and she was, she wasn't really super old. And I thought she was a daughter of one of the ladies because she was there, you know, she had been there and I'd been there for a couple of months and she came up to me and she said, you know, you got this thing wrong about Jesus. And I was talking about the blood of Jesus. She said, you got that wrong. And I go, oh no. And so she, like, I'm standing here and she's standing here and I'm looking at my partner who's sitting at the piano and she's like nodding her head and I'm going, oh no. I mean, you, you know, get a couple things wrong. You don't want to be wrong about this, right? This is like the thing. Don't be wrong about the blood of Jesus, right? And I didn't, what I didn't know is that my partner was talking to someone else out of my sight. And she's nodding her head, you know, and it seems like this lady would say this, and then ladies, not, you know, my, my partner's nodding her head, and I'm going, oh, no. And I said, okay, well, help me out here. Tell me, what is the blood of Jesus? And she said, marijuana and I had a I had a reaction at the same moment one was oh thank God that was my first reaction you're crazy and oh no you can't really believe that so I had that kind of but but that my point is when somebody who you think is sane says something just crackers you go, they're crackers, right? You don't say, well, they're a good teacher, they're a good rabbi, I'd let them watch my kids, I'd let them operate. No, you wouldn't. You'd say, yeah, I think you're nuts, okay? And so when, G when we say that Jesus makes these exclusive claims, you can't say, well, he was a good teacher, eh, but he can't have made these cracker kind of statements. No, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Here's the third thing. So, Jesus makes a beautiful promise. This is the verse I told you to underline in your Bible. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice what Jesus doesn't do here. He doesn't offer us a fourfold path to peace like giving, like Buddha. He doesn't give us the five pillars of peace through submission, like Islam. Nor does he give us a 10-step self-help uh, program to relieve our weariness. Jesus simply offers himself as a universal solution for all that burdens us. See, our souls only find their rest when there's hope. Look at what this psalm, Psalm 60, this Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8 is an amazing psalm. These words just are absolutely amazing. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. 
Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him. For God is our refuge. That's a fantastic passage of Scripture. And on the cross, Jesus took the heavy yoke of guilt and shame and condemnation. And He offers us in exchange His easy yoke and light burden of simply trusting Him like a child. As we put our trust in Him, we find forgiveness, peace, and hope. Not only for this life, but for the next. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of glory. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Paul says you can have peace with God. And that's what we need. But here's the thing. We couldn't make peace on our own because we can't reach to heaven. So what heaven did was heaven reached down and through Jesus Christ, through the Son of God. And, and Jesus came down from heaven and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And He gave His life on the cross and He shed His blood on the cross. And He said, it is finished. And everyone who calls upon Him will find peace. Will find hope. Will find forgiveness. That's what He offers you. So when he says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, give your life to me. And as you give your life to me, as you yoke your life to me, you will find peace, you will find joy, you will find hope, you will find purpose and meaning, you will find it all. But you will only find it in me. You will only find the Father through me. So Jesus offers us peace for our souls. And the question I want to ask you is, have you found peace? Have you found hope? Have you found joy? See, there's only one name who can bring peace with God and eternal hope. And His name is Jesus. Do you know Him? So, you may have questions that are brought to you and understand people come with questions. And you need to answer and and give a good, thoughtful answer logical, intellectual answer. But on the other side of it, pray. Pray that God would turn hearts. Pray that God would use you. Pray that God would, would, would uh, as you plant the seeds that, and they get watered, and that God would... Because the, the, the Bible tells us that we are the planters, but we are not the ones that bring the life. Only God does that. And, and too many times we're, we're all about trying to win an argument. It's not about winning an argument. And yes, Christianity and Jesus made absolutely exclusive claims. But it doesn't do us any good to downplay them. Because if we downplay them, we lose the edge of the gospel. The edge of the gospel is this. This world is headed to hell. And Jesus came from heaven to earth 
to save us from hell. And, and so the story of the rich man and Lazarus is really timely for us because it basically says that if people are in hell, they're saying, I wish somebody would tell my family about God, about faith, about Jesus. But it isn't going to be a miracle that's going to turn their heart. It isn't going to be an intellectual argument. God can use that. But what's going to turn a heart is when God turns their heart. Pray that God would turn a heart. Pray that God would would work in a person's life and turn their heart. And you, you think of your own life before Jesus Christ and your life now. And the one thing that changed was God turned your heart. So I'll close with this. It's very interesting. Over the years, and I've been here for about 20 years, I've been in a lot of different small groups of Bible studies. And it's very interesting to me because some people, you see their heart turned in the group and they come to know Jesus. And they, 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 they get angry. And they say things like, well, I went to church and I never heard this. No one ever shared this with me. And I'm so angry. And I said, time out, time out. No, they probably did. They probably shared it on a regular basis. But you know what? Your heart hadn't been turned yet. You were hard soil and the seed went and bounced right off. And you're dealing with people today. Your family, your workplace, people you like, your neighbors, your friends. And you can't understand why they just don't get it. Because their heart is hard doesn't mean they're, they're not good people. It doesn't mean they're not intelligent people. It doesn't mean they're not wise people. They just have a hard heart, just like you did. But when God turned your heart, everything turned, right? So pray that God turns hearts, because that's the most powerful thing you can do. Be ready to give an answer, but be on your knees and pray. Because my guarantee is you're going to pray more people in heaven than you're going to argue. And I think it honors God that way too. Let me pray with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement we get. Thank you for the incredible promises that you give us. That when we give our lives to Jesus, his yoke is light. His burden is is not heavy. Because he he shouldered the burden for us. And thank you that he provided the only path to you. The only way to you. Thank you, Father, that this is an exclusive claim, but help us not to to shy away from it because everyone has an exclusive claim on the truth, not just Christians. But help us to to do it in a loving way. Help us to share in a loving way because we know that in our lives there were people that we know cared about us first and and kind of blew up... (laughs) They blew up our thought process and how we were thinking through their, their, their thoughtful questions and their uh, answers to our arguments. I, I can remember personally, Father, having a hard heart and, and, and having an attitude and a, and a view of life and having somebody that cared about me just share something that went to, directly to my heart. And I uh, immediately, I just rejected it. I just said, that can't be right. But deep in my heart, I knew it was. The seed was planted. So, Father, we have to use vocal witness 
And we have to use good arguments. And we have to use, we have to be able to logically defend our faith. But we also need to understand there is a spiritual battle for the hearts of the people around us. The people we love and care for. May we be on our knees praying that you would turn their hearts. And Father, use us in any way you see fit to help more people step into your kingdom in the coming weeks, in the coming years. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.